Section 78 of The Catholic's Ready Answer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Emerson Wells at FormulaFreak.com. The Catholic's Ready Answer by Rev. M. P. Hill. Section 78. The Resurrection of Christ. Objections. 1. The disciples of Christ, in thinking he had risen from the dead, were laboring under an hallucination. Their minds were so filled with the thought of the Master that faith and imagination combined to create an image of his living humanity, which they took for the reality. Fleiderer Strauss et al. 2. The story of the resurrection cannot be accepted as authentic because the number and order of succession of the Lord's apparitions to his disciples cannot be ascertained with certainty. Harnack. The Answer. On no other subject connected with our Lord's earthly career has the ingenuity of critics been more busily exercised than upon his resurrection from the dead, and their critical zeal is the best proof of the crucial character of the question of the resurrection. The sovereign of the dogma of the resurrection is recognized by every Christian. If Christ be not risen again, says St. Paul, your faith is vain, for you are yet in your sins. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17 But an all-wise providence has brought it to pass that no other fact in history has been better attested and no attempts at disproving Christian dogma have covered critics with half as much ridicule as the effort to reduce the history of the resurrection to a myth. The books of the New Testament have had the same good fortune, though it was more than good fortune, as Christianity itself, inasmuch as both came into being in a period of the world's existence when any important event, if it took place at all, could never be buried in obscurity or be lost beneath a mass of legendary lore. The world had become more of a unit by the intercommunication of its parts, and more than ever as a unit had learned to transmit its written records to succeeding ages. Two great languages which divided the civilized world between them, to wit, the Latin and the Greek, became the twin channels by which the thoughts of one people were conveyed to all the others. Hence Christianity, which in its essence is a world religion, and the sacred documents or scriptures which emanated from it, have come down to us not obscured and deformed by time, but in all their original integrity, and bearing the same intrinsic relation to each other as in the days of the apostles. We are, of course, describing only a partial cause, and that too under providence of the perpetuation of Christianity and its sacred writings. The books of the New Testament, taken in gross, are accepted even by most of the higher critics as the genuine writings of the apostles and their immediate disciples, in so far as they are historical, as credible narratives of facts connected with the life and teaching of Jesus of Nazareth. Many of the higher critics have indeed impugned the genuineness of the fourth gospel, which from the earliest centuries had been ascribed to St. John, the beloved disciple. But their acceptance of the first three, or the synoptic gospels, is quite sufficient so far as we are concerned. The synoptics contain more than enough to establish the fact of the resurrection, but the critics, whilst admitting the genuineness of the Gospels, assail the Christian interpretation of them. As to the resurrection, whilst crediting the evangelists with honesty of intention, they consider them the dupes of their own imagination. Several of these hostile criticisms are so utterly baseless, in some cases so utterly silly, that it is only extrinsic considerations that entitle them to any consideration at the hands of a serious apologist. 
Take, for instance, the view of the resurrection defended by Flatterer, a writer whose superficial books on great subjects are unfortunately finding their way into English. The illusion of the apostles regarding the resurrection, he tells us, was a psychological fact to which history furnishes countless parallels, the miraculous character of which consists of nothing more than the creative force of a faith and a love which are stronger than death. In other words, the faith of the disciples was so lively and their love so ardent as to produce in their imaginations an image of their Lord so lifelike as to persuade them that they beheld him with their bodily eyes. It is a wonder that the very pinning of such a statement was not enough to make it seem ridiculous before the ink was dry on the paper. In lieu of the countless parallels furnished by history, where, we ask, is there one solitary parallel to the series of supposed delusive apparitions recorded by the evangelists? To suppose that not one, but many persons, not in their sleeping, but in their waking hours, fancied, merely fancied, on many distinct occasions, and all at the same time, and in the same way, at intervals during a period of exactly forty days, and not a day longer, that they saw with their bodily eyes one who had risen from the dead, heard him speak, listened to his instructions, took food with him, felt his presence with the sense of touch, and finally saw him mount into the skies. To suppose that all this was the work of pure imagination is to exhibit in oneself a psychological phenomenon no less remarkable than the supposed delusion of the disciples of Jesus. And what possible warrant is there for supposing that the faith of the disciples was in such a state of exaltation? Their very lack of faith was so great as to deserve the reproaches of the divine master. His efforts to revive their faith and the devices he so condescendingly employed for this purpose furnished some of the most touching passages in the four Gospels. We hoped, said two of them despondingly as they were retiring from the scene of their great disappointment, we hoped that it was he that should have redeemed Israel. And now, today is the third day since these things were done. The third day. Why, that was the very day on which their faith and their imagination should have been liveliest. And yet it is the day on which their despondency reaches its height, and their faith was all but entirely eclipsed. The incredulity of the disciples is indeed one of the most striking features of the history of the resurrection. Even Harnack, the sinosure of German evangelical theologians, is found in the benches of the opposition. Harnack finds it difficult to make out of the four gospel narratives one clear story in which the number and the order of occurrence of our Lord's apparitions are given with perfect clearness. Hence he rejects the four narratives in the lump as furnishing no satisfactory evidence of the resurrection. Strange that a man of Professor Harnack's caliber should take up an attitude of mind so utterly illogical. If his argument is conclusive, we might with as much reason infer from the fact that the precise number and order of Julius Caesar's expeditions to ancient Germany can no longer be ascertained with exactness that he really never set foot in Germany. And yet no one questions Caesar's having been in Germany. Let the reader suppose that four persons come to him, one after the other, and give him a somewhat detailed account of a series of important happenings, all tending to prove and illustrate a certain fact. Let him suppose further that a few of the details in one narrative cannot easily be made to fit in with certain details in the others. Not that there is any manifest contradiction, but that there is a trifle of mystery as to how certain incidents could be made to dovetail together in a single account of the whole transaction. Now, if the mysterious element should be dropped altogether out of the narrative, and yet an abundance of evidence of the main fact remained, it would be quite illogical to infer from the mysteriousness of the part eliminated the uncertainty of the part retained. 
and yet this is precisely what Professor Harnack does with the accounts of the four evangelists. It is not clear to his mind how the incidents are to be arranged chronologically, or how the journey or journeys of the holy women to the sepulchre are to be made to harmonize. And for these and similar reasons, he rejects the entire story. And yet the story in all its other aspects is simply overwhelming as furnishing evidence of the resurrection and of the subsequent apparitions. Every species of testimony is supplied. Our Lord's disciples see him frequently, speak with him, and in some cases hold long conversations with him, take food with him, and at his own pressing invitation touch his hands and feet or his side. If the multitude and the variety of the details are so convincing, the special and unlooked-for character of some of them would alone be convincing if unsupported by other incidents. We refer to those which exhibit the incredulity of the disciples and the repeated efforts of their Lord to remove it. Here as elsewhere, the perfect artlessness of the story and the air of guileless sincerity as well as of objective reality that pervade it have succeeded in breaking down the objections of those who had begun by endeavoring to demolish either the genuineness or authenticity of the gospel narratives, but were ultimately obliged to make a change of position which only revealed the inherent weakness of their main contention. The palpable weakness of the case made out by such able men as Harnack can be explained only by the fact that their minds are constantly playing at cross-purposes. Accepting on the one hand the Gospels as genuine, they are committed on the other to philosophical dogmas which make them quite incapable of seeing in the Gospels what would otherwise obtrude itself upon their notice. If they could only reduce the Gospels to those inferior types of sacred books of the East which have come down to us of a nebulous past and bear upon them only obscure marks of their origin, the task of demolishing the evidence for the resurrection would be a much simpler one. But the books of the New Testament can never be relegated to such a category of sacred writings. They shine both by their own intrinsic light as by the light of all modern history. And yet their obvious message is obscure to those whose minds are warped by an antecedent prejudice against the supernatural, and especially the miraculous. The resurrection, if it was a fact, was a miracle. But miracles are impossible. Therefore, for Harnack and his compeers, darkness in the midst of light, Two other objections to the resurrection deserve only a passing notice, as they receive today but little countenance from those who would gladly avail themselves of them if the objections had any force. The one is that our Lord never rose from the dead because he had not really died. His apparent death was followed by a revival of bodily strength during his entombment. The other is that the story of the apparitions was a deliberate fabrication of the disciples of Jesus. A thoughtful and unprejudiced reading of the Gospels would convince the reader that neither of these assertions has the smallest foundation in fact. If there is anything from which providence has provided in connection with the life of the Savior, it is a superabundance of evidence bearing on the reality of his humanity and of his passion and death. As for anything like willful imposture practiced by the apostles, the theory refutes itself so easily that few authors of any reputation in our day subscribe to it. See Christ's Divinity. End of section 78. Recording by Emerson Wells at formulafreak.com.